Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Founder Spirit Podcast. I'm your host, Jennifer Wu. In this podcast series, I interview exceptional individuals from all over the world with the Founder Spirit, ranging from social entrepreneurs, tech founders, to philanthropists, elite athletes, and more. Together, we'll uncover not only how they managed to succeed in face of multiple challenges, but also who they are as people and their human story. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, as well as our website at thefounderspirit.com. Our guest today is Tristan Leconte, a serial entrepreneur, a pioneer in the fields of supply chain sustainability and climate change, a published author of five books, and a public figure in the environmental space. He has been recognized by the Schwab Foundation for Social Entrepreneurs, the Forum of Young Global Leaders by the World Economic Forum, and Time Magazine as one of the 100 most influential people in the world in 2010. Tristan is the founder of Alter Echo, selling fair trade and organic products in France, US, and Australia. He also founded Pure Project, a certified B Corporation that works with companies to achieve their net zero climate goals through nature-based solutions. Since 2008, Pure Project has developed over 60 projects in 40 countries that sequester CO2 through reforestation, agroforestry, conservation, and regenerative agriculture, and was successfully acquired in October 2022. Tristan also co-founded the International Platform for Insetting, a business-led organization advocating for climate action at the source of global value chains. Most recently, Tristan launched his fourth venture, Second Life, a social enterprise focused on ocean plastics, waste recycling, and recovery projects. The passionate leader and visionary in sustainable development and environmental economics, Tristan currently sits on the board of Pure Project, the 1T.org Advisory Council, as well as the Nespresso Sustainability Advisory Board. He holds a master's degree in business administration from HEC Paris and oversees the Pure Farm in Northern Thailand. Hi, Tristan. Welcome to the Founder Spirit Podcast. It's great to have you with us today, and thank you for taking the time. Thank you, Jennifer. Very happy to be with you. Tristan, growing up in a French military family, what was your life like as a child? Quite happy. I love to go in nature on a bicycle. I spent days immersed in nature where you can create some adventures. And I understand that Catholic faith and Christian values were also a large part of your upbringing, even though you evolved away from institutionalized religion later in life. But as a teenager, you used to participate in these silent retreats at a French monastery. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience? Yeah, I've always been very inspired and humbled by the monks uh, in a Benedictine monastery in France, where they decide to live as a community and to pray seven times a day. There is such beauty, purity, in uh, when you listen to their chanting in the church at 5 a.m. I like this kind of testimonial of devotion. It's extreme in a way for us, but uh, it's very inspiring because it shows that we can uh, transcend our own limitations. In my life, they came back to me a few times or I came to them. And for example, they invested in my company, Alterico. We had our head office located in one uh, Benedictine monastery. And these people are very inspiring because they are away from society, but actually they see society with a very clear eyes because they are not immersed in, in society. So it's very interesting to exchange with them. You know, it's interesting because while you were studying business in Paris, you started a student association 
in Nepal called Association Solidarity France Nepal, and you opened two schools there. What prompted you to do something like that? So this was with my two best friends. It was uh, 29 years ago. Next year, we're going to celebrate the 30 years of uh, Solidarité France-Népal, this NGO, which remains a student NGO, where every year about 40 to 50 students go in the field in Nepal in rural areas to do uh, latrines or improved cooking stoves or English class, whatever the villagers uh, need. I'm going there uh, next week, actually. The idea to develop a project that would be both useful and as part of the curriculum. By serendipity, we went to a library. We found a book on Nepal rural development. We photocopied uh, the last pages where there were names of uh, service providers for development. And we sent letters saying, if we get some money from a company, would you help us implement a project in the village? And one responded by letter. At that time, there was no email. And we received a grant from a French company at that time of uh, 10 or 20,000 French francs, so like $3,000. And so we left with uh, my two best friends and landed in Kathmandu in a totally uh, new environment. I was feeling lost uh, with the money in our pocket and thinking, what are we going to do? It's crazy. But it was an amazing experience because it was entrepreneurial and we did the mission in the village. And then at the end of this mission, when we came back, we said, okay, let's give the association to the students of the next year. And like that, every year for 30 years, it has been passed to the next one. And what I find interesting is that many of the students who went with this NGO later on, I hired them in my company or they were working for other NGOs. So it's a great catalyzer for students who want to have an experience. It's both entrepreneurial and it has a great impact to make people aware that they can have a different type of job and that they can create their own job or be social entrepreneur. For my case, at least this was the trigger. Because after that, when I went to work for multinational, I remembered that experience and I felt, well, it's possible in Nepal that I can be an entrepreneur, I can live from that maybe and be useful for the world. And today it's more and more the case, especially in Europe. So yeah, that was originally the motivation just to do a project and, um, and to enjoy with my, my two best friends. So you had never been to Nepal before? No, I had never traveled outside of Europe. I remember the cultural shock and we were doing this... Uh, negotiation with the service providers we had selected to see, okay, where are we going to do, which village, what kind of training. And it was a lot of responsibility, but I, I had taken a leap. And so by doing this project, I had developed my skills much beyond what I could do in any other part of my studies. And this is what I still believe, like when you're passionate about what you're doing, you develop your capacities much beyond what you would do in a normal company where you are just asked to do uh, your business as usual, more or less. Sure, because you're constantly challenged with just doing everything, <laughs> which is most of the case. Upon graduation, you worked for L'Oreal in South Korea, which is a large French multinational. And what was your motivation to start Alter Echo two years after joining that company and believe you were in your mid-20s? I felt I needed more purpose and I remembered that experience in Nepal. And so I thought uh, I need to quit L'Oréal and start my own company. And that's when, by chance, my sister had given me an article and I discovered Fairtrade and I thought, wow, it's great. And there is a lot I can bring in terms of marketing, in terms of more professional approach to develop a, a network of shops. And that's how I started, but with no experience. And I'm guessing that's around 1998, which is when companies, at least in the U.S., like Trader Joe's and Whole Foods, had really started to grow. What 
promises did you see in selling these fair trade products? But the idea was to talk about fair trade, which was very unknown in France in 98. I think the, the awareness about fair trade was around 2 to 5% at that time. So it was really only some hardliners or very engaged people who had heard about it. So it was a whole uh, story to talk about what are the conditions of international trade, especially who are the small farmers, how many people do they represent, and finding out that more than half of the population is actually a small farmer who has one hectare of cultivated land and who earns $500 per year. With his family, he represents 4 million people. And it's most of the products we consume in the supermarket. So to give just a little bit more makes a big change. And so it was more developed in Holland, in Northern Europe, and in Switzerland, for example. In the US, not at all, even less in Europe. And so we did all this uh, advocacy. And then there was the people against uh, selling fair trade in supermarkets. I tried to sell it in shops, but my shops didn't work. I tried it on the website, but it didn't work as well. And so I went to sell this product like coffee, tea, chocolate in supermarkets where there was big demand because that's where most people do their shopping. Once we proposed these everyday goods to consumers with a good price, a good quality certification, they really liked it. And then the market developed. So it was very inspiring to see that we could make a change in the middle of the shelves of the supermarkets, which were totally controlled by multinationals. When you look at the coffee, uh, it's crazy. There is no coffee country which has its own brand present in the supermarket. It tells a lot about the kind of neocolonialism there is in international trade and in the brands today. And to give a place to these small-scale farmers to say, we respect the big brands, but let's give a space at least like one meter for all the small-scale farmers who can sell uh, their products through a brand that is defending their values and their stake, even though it's not enough because... What we could give with fair trade was very limited. It was like 10 or 20% more. But if you earn $500 a year, it means you're going to earn 600 or it's not going to change your life. It's, not, it's just going to be a small thing. And this is what we discovered. With fair trade, we don't really change the life of farmers. We bring hope by the sense that we help this collective dynamic and by helping them to gather at the cooperative and to strengthen them because a part of the premium is invested collectively in a school or road or equipment or whatever the farmers want because they decide how they use this premium. This premium brings back hope and a vision of development for the future. So I would say fair trade really uh, brings this hope and this change of culture progressively. Otherwise, the added value uh, remains uh, quite uh, limited, unfortunately. That was um, what I discovered along the years. How did you secure the deal with Monoprix, the large French retailer? So actually, uh, I was ready to sell more fair trade craft work product when Monoprix uh, called me back and said, uh, we are interested by uh, Alter Eco, but we would like uh, food products. So I had selected a range of chocolates from Peru, coffees from South America and Africa, and they took the range of products and they tried it under our brand and it was a success. We had great sales uh, from the beginning. So from there, the year after, we expanded to other retailers. And then progressively, we entered all the, the main retailers in France. And so the company grew to uh, $30 million in less than three to five years. And at the same time, we launched in the US and in Australia. You had expanded your product categories of different products, and you were importing tea from India, sugar from the, from the Philippines, rice from Thailand. What were some of your growing pains during this period? 
a lot of pain, a lot of issues to manage the stock, not to have too much, not to have the chocolates melting in the containers, not to have some destructions on the delivery to the supermarkets. We were doing huge promotion. There was a fair trade week during which we were doing 30% of our yearly sales, but it was a big logistics mess. We had overworked the team, so we had some burnout. All the issues of being a startup in the field of food products, when you're a supplier of mass retail, it's a nightmare, honestly. A lot of pressure. We had to pay in advance the product because we were pre-financing. That was part of the fair trade rules, and we were paid quite late by the supermarkets. So we need a lot of cash flow to run the company. We had many constraints. Uh, we had to pay a higher price, but we had to sell at a similar price to consumers. Otherwise, it's very hard to gain market shares. We had to be the best in each category. We had great chocolate. The consumers know when the products are better. Some products were more difficult, like orange juice is very complicated to make, but with good quality. So we experienced a lot. Alter Echo was in many ways not just a importer or distributor, but it was also a development company. And you worked very closely to help these small holder farmers to get certified by fair trade so that they can get a better price for their own products. And as a result, you ended up traveling around the world to visit these cooperatives from the far ends of Amazon to corners in Africa and Southeast Asia. You stayed with them in some of the most remote places in the world and perhaps the poorest communities, yet you had this amazing experience. Can you tell us about some of your adventures in your world travels with these people? Yeah, thank you to mention it because it's true. It has been the driver of my motivation to work for and with these small-scale farmers because everywhere in the world I've been amazed by the message of hope they give, how inspiring they are and how humble. They have so many values to share and to incarnate, especially in the co-ops we work with. There is always a few leaders who are very, very inspiring and working a lot, not only at their own farm level, but for the community, for the co-op. They are usually the president or the vice president of the co-op, and it's with them that I've learned a lot. They are really uh, local leaders, and usually with them, we spend a lot of time. They go everywhere with us. They don't count their time. And uh, and so it's after 10 or 20 years of developing projects. And this is a good thing, both with Alter Eco and Pure Projects, that we do very long-term projects. So I've came to know uh, generations of people, young people who now work in our organization or knowing them when they were a kid and now they are an adult. So there is a long um, interaction, which I find very interesting. And indeed, for about 20 years, I spent half of my time traveling and staying often at the farmer house. It started one day in Togo when I was interviewing a farmer. And then at the end of the interview, he said, oh, why don't you stay at my home? And I said, okay, I stay. I remember his name was Kofi and he was a pineapple farmer in Togo. We were buying his dried pineapple. He had many kids, but he left me to sleep there and I was honored. From there, when then the, the guy of the co-op had left, he told me, oh, I'm going to show you everything now, tell you all the truths of my real business, what I'm telling, what I'm not telling. And I found, wow, not only it's an amazing human experience, but as well, I go over and on the other side of understanding the real life of this person. And from there, I thought, oh, I'm going to always stay at the farmer place if they accept it. Usually they're very happy and the conditions are quite uh, rustic, but it's incomparable because then the relation with these farmers have changed uh, when I've slept 10 to 15 times at their home. And in each cooperative or project where we've been traveling, I've always tried to go back 
to sleep at least one night in one village where I go back every year so that I can see the evolution of the impact of what we're doing or not. Whereas if you always change, you just see a picture of a farmer at one stage, but you cannot see the evolution. So I think it's very important to uh, to set the projects in time and to have a baseline in Papua New Guinea. I remember the first time I went there and I would go back several times to see uh, how we generate impact or not. And what things did you see? What change had you experienced? In some cases, uh, for example, uh, Mr. Punchi Banda in Sri Lanka, he had only 0.37 hectare of tea, and now he has almost uh, one hectare of teas and of spices combined in agroforestry models, where he has access to water close from his house. Uh, the cooperative comes to pick up his tea leaves when he harvests them and gives him a better price. His wife is doing some weaving as a complementary revenue. So the fair trade and organic uh, certification of the product has uh, helped him to uh, double his revenues. The most interesting thing is the hope and the vision and the dynamics that the cooperative install in the, with the groups of farmers because they are proud of their cooperative and thanks to their cooperative, they export their products. Some visitors come from companies. They have a better price. They trust the future better. And from there, they can start to diversify with other programs, eventually other sustainability programs. So this is what works in Sri Lanka. In Peru, it's one of the projects I'm the most proud about, where I started Pure Projet because I started to plant trees to offset a carbon footprint of Alterico products with the suppliers of cocoa. We had the farmers plant 5 million trees and as well to protect an area of 800,000 hectares as forest conservation, which is now part of a UNESCO Biosphere Reserve of 2.4 million hectares. So from a small uh, fair trade company like Alterico, we have developed with Pure Projet uh, a regional project that has an international uh, ambition registered at the UNESCO uh, World Heritage, both for its natural and cultural heritage. So we have this amazing project that has developed to very large scale from just uh, the engagement of a few farmers and myself to offset the chocolate. And it's typically where I find it inspiring to see the complementarity. For example, in this area, there were coca farmers for cocaine production. In the 80s, it was a red zone. Only the army could go in because it was controlled by narco-traffickers, uh, Colombian ones. And the Peruvian farmers were earning a bit with, with the leaves, but the, the area was not safe and they really wanted to change their life. So there was a program where they eradicated coca with a fungus. So it's an American joint program with the USAID. And then there was a substitution program to bring them, for example, cocoa and coffee, which worked well. So they became cocoa and coffee farmer. From there, they, they gathered as a cooperative. They got organic and fair trade certified. We started to buy their cocoa and plant trees with them and to carbon certify them for the reforestation project. And now forest conservation so they went from coca production, where it's hell, to organic, fair trade, carbon neutral project. And now the UNESCO biosphere vetted by the Peruvian government as a model of sustainable development. I think it's very interesting to see this evolution. And it's exactly this dynamics that we want to create with Pure Projet at a regional level. Because what we need today is to protect forests in collaboration with the local farmers. And we see a complementarity from organic to fair trade to carbon offsetting. It's different mechanisms that help the farmers to better regenerate their ecosystem and generate ecosystem services for the companies and for the world, for all of us. You said with Alter Echo, there was always an issue with the working capital because you were paying the 
cooperatives first, and then you would only get the money later from the supermarket. So that required large amounts of working capital. The margins weren't so big for you. How was the fundraising for Alter Echo as a result of this large working capital need? We had a lot of press and we were supported by the media. I was coming from HEC and launching Fairtrade. So it was a peculiar story at that time because social entrepreneurship was not a reality. Because we were supported by the media, I got a lot of traction from investors and I had 17 investors, small ones, institutional ones, like private equity funds in the field of agricultural sector, innovation, and even the monks who had their investment fund. And so I had these 17 investors and it's a bit tricky because when the company goes well, it's fine. But when you have problems, then you have both problem outside and inside the company to try to explain why it's not working well, etc. So that was a challenge. The problem with Alterico is that when you do $30 million sales uh, and you sell uh, to mass retail, you're too small to really weigh anything. And so you're uh, dependent on their conditions and every year there is one supermarket that is uh, kicking you out for a few cents that you don't want to give. When you do maybe $200 million sales, then you can support the pressure of uh, mass retail, especially in France, it's very concentrated. You have uh, five or six supermarket chain who control 90% of the market. So it was very tough. The idea was great and the demand for fair trade was there for sure, but we were too small to continue like that. While the supermarkets saw that these products were selling, then they wanted to sell under their own brand. By 2010, Alter Echo France had contracted directly with 50 cooperatives from over 30 different countries. Yet in 2011, you left the company that you founded 13 years earlier to start Pure Project. Can you tell us what happened there? It was the moment to give Alterico to a bigger company that could defend it in front of the retail uh, supermarket chain, which were very uh, powerful. So we sold the company to Bjorg, Distriborg, which was the biggest uh, European brand of organic and fair trade products. The idea was to have Alterico and develop to a wider uh, extent by a, a bigger player. I think when you're a brand like that, there is a moment where you, you can continue to develop by yourself, but it's going to be very hard. I think I did my share of uh, launching it. And then it was the time for a bigger company to make it more mature and stabilize uh, its market shares in the supermarkets with a big sales force. So that's what we did. Um, and then I focused only on Pure Projet uh, from 2008 or 9 on. What were some of the... Lessons learned from Alterico. I'm very averse to any uh, business model that involves uh, buying and selling products. I believe much more in uh, asset light models that sell services. I believe in a business that is cash flow positive. So you get paid before you have to spend the money to do the project because then you will never need an investor. You never touch products. Because when you have product, it's a lot of material to transport and customs and shelf life and a lot of issues, quality issues. So I believe a lot more in cash flow positive services and selling mostly to businesses because it's much easier to develop. So that's uh, the lessons I learned from Alterico. But I was lucky that Pure Project came where all my problems were resolved. There was no more product. The clients were very nice. We're not discussing prices like the mass retailer because... When it's a big brand and they buy trees, it's not all the same negotiation. We were cash flow positive. So I started with 100 euro, a pure project, and never had to uh, ask any uh, 
debt or investor. Uh, so I remained fully uh, on board uh, and in capacity to orient the company as I wanted. It was significant margins against Alter Rico, which was low margin. So it was all uh, solved. Uh, and it's funny because I help some entrepreneurs these days. Sometimes it's too late. They already chose what they want to do and they are passionate. But otherwise, I try to make them uh, aware of that, that be careful of the model, which require a lot of investment, which are cash flow negative, which involve products or B2C. B2C often seems to be... Uh, the easy thing, but actually usually it's the hardest with Alterico for five years, we didn't succeed. And it's when you have many issues that you learn the most, I guess. I think it's also where you grow personally the most is through these difficulties. Can you tell us what Pure Project does and how you came up with doing projects while you were working in parallel at Alterico? Yeah, so for Alter Rico, we started to plant trees with our suppliers of cocoa in Peru in a small village called Santa Rosa. We planted 5,000 trees and in agroforestry model, combining these trees with uh, cocoa trees. And when I talked about it at a conference, someone from Nestle came to me and said, oh, could you do it for us to offset the footprint of water bottles? And so both at Perrier and at, uh, at Vitel uh, watershed areas, but as well in Peru to generate volume and to offset the carbon footprint of these products. And so that's how I started Pure Project by Total Serendipity. When I planted these trees for, for Alteric, I never thought it would become a company to do it for others. And since then, we've specialized in uh, planting trees, forest conservation or regenerative agricultural projects within the supply chain of companies to help them offset their footprint. But since it's inside their company, we call it insetting because it is a transformative of the agricultural practices of the supply chain where they source their products from. And it can be now regarded as a carbon reduction and not only an offset because it means companies can put that within their reduction targets. And today, many companies are looking for ways to reduce their footprint, planting trees because it's removal is accepted as a methodology to reach net zero the framework for companies to engage for climate. And usually you have to reduce your emission by 80% thanks to this SBTI, science-based target initiative, which aligned the company with Paris Agreement. And to do this reduction, you have to do it within your own value chain. And the rest that you can't reduce, you have to offset it and ideally again within your value chain. So what we developed with Alterico first and then with Pure Project became what is now the norm or the holy grail for companies who want to have a legitimate transformative carbon approach. So it has been an amazing endeavor. I started it because I love nature and I wanted Alterico to have like perfect product, fair trade, organic and carbon neutral. And it turned out to become a company which uh, 15 years after is aligned with uh, the most uh, qualitative uh, carbon project. I feel very blessed to see the evolution with fair trade. We started from only a hardliner market and nobody knows about it to now it's a bit integrated in the society. It's not yet what we dreamed about, but it's a start with Pure Project as well. It's only a few companies who have engaged for now, mostly B2C large brands. It's a pity that there is all this debate about greenwashing and that when a company does something, it's like scrutiny. But it's very encouraging to see the acceleration uh, that has happened since I, I started Pure Project in 2008. Who would think that insetting would become the norm? Whereas at that time, I remember when we found this pun of insetting, it was with someone of a fair trade international. 
I came back to the office and I said, oh, we should call our offer in setting. And everybody was laughing like, oh, it's so funny, uh, you know, Joker. And now it's uh, really uh, how we call uh, integrated uh, offsetting uh, within the value chain. So it's very inspiring. I just want to mention that you actually gave birth to the concept in setting. It's different from offsetting because you're working within the supply chain of the companies. With Pure Project, we were definitely the first ones to implement it at large scale because what we do is mostly in setting within the supply chains of cocoa and coffee farmers. We work with the biggest players in coffee and cocoa, both in West Africa and in South America and in Asia as well. That's where we find most of the coffee and cocoa supply chains. Cocoa sector is quite small. 80% of the cocoa is produced in Ivory Coast and Ghana. And because the major players have realized that if they don't do anything for cocoa to turn it into agroforestry, there won't be cocoa in the future. By addressing two countries, we can address 80% of the market. So there is an amazing dynamics happening there. And maybe we're going to turn cocoa into a 100% agroforestry or shade-grown commodity which would be a first we could then apply to coffee, which is a much bigger market. But it gives hope that we can go from one commodity to another and progressively turn them fully agroforestry to make them more resilient, to generate ecosystem services, so sequester carbon, help them to better adapt to climate change, enrich the soil, biodiversity, water resources, and diversify the revenues of the farmer. This is the main thing we discovered with Pure Project. Originally, I was planting the tree to offset the carbon footprint of the chocolate, but I realized, wow, the benefits are holistic, much beyond just sequestering carbon on soil, water, biodiversity, farmers' revenue. The trees are the best investment you can make today to foster socioeconomic development and to make the supply chains resilient, especially when we talk about coffee and cocoa, because these two crops are actually forestry species. When you go at the origin of coffee in Ethiopia or the origin of cocoa in, uh, in Peru, these trees are found in the forest. So they need a shade and they are very well adapted to agroforestry for that reason. In October last year, Pure Project was actually acquired by Brigo Investments, which is a large international private equity group. Why did you decide to sell when things were going so well? I mean, you started the company with $100. You had no investors. Not even the monks were allowed to invest <laughs> in your project. Why did you decide to sell? It was a decision we took with the whole management team because we were becoming what everybody wants to do. And we have calls every day at Pure Project of companies asking, do you have uh, more agroforestry uh, carbon? And we are sold out for uh, three years already. And we have so many opportunities that we have to pass because we don't have any money to pre-finance. It's again, this issue of cash flow. So we are cash flow positive, but we can only invest in trees if the client starts upfront to pay us. And it takes a risk over 40 years that the carbon will be delivered. The idea to have investors coming in, to be able to transition towards tech, integrate a lot of tech like remote sensing and to calculate the stock of carbon. As you know, in the carbon sphere today, we use methodologies which are good, but made with measuring the trees at breast height uh, in the field, which is a uh, a very time-consuming and not always the most precise uh, way to calculate the stock of carbon per hectare. So now, thanks to satellites, laser guns, and various tools, we are assessing how we're going to be able to monitor all this carbon that we generate thanks to planting trees or conserving forests or uh, doing regag with the farmers. So we have this shift where we needed a, a lot of investment thanks to this 
new tools. We're going to manage the carbon in the scope three of companies at their supplier level. That's our work is going to change. We're not just going to do projects. We're going to do a monitoring of all these fields where these companies buy their products from to see what is the level of carbon, of biodiversity, of the soil qualities, the water resources, the farmer's revenue. There is a lot we can do to help to generate impact there. And so for this reason, we needed an investor to pre-finance many more trees to answer the demand because what we need is a revolution. Every day, 10 million trees are cut. And with Pure Projet, we planted 20 million trees in 14 years. So we need to have many Pure Projet uh, startups developing, not only in the field of climate, but as well in the field of biodiversity, plastic, soil, water, culture. And this is how I see it. And this is why we decided to sell Pure Projet to Bregal because now it needs expansion. The market is already merging and different players got together. And we believe a lot to unite the forces between investors, social enterprises, companies to scale. There is a lot of destruction still happening. So forest conservation is part of our project, but it's very tricky. It's the way we go now towards very large scale project. And we see that in the field of NGOs, they have more and more difficulty to fund themselves with grants. Because companies want to do the job within their value chain and want to have service providers like us who help them to integrate it. For example, if we take Nespresso, already has more than 800 people working in the field, supporting the 50,000 farmers that are supplying them with coffee, with training programs that exist for 20 years now or more on the quality, on the sustainability and on the productivity of the farms. And so when we developed tree planting project, we work with these 800 agronomists who are already supporting the suppliers of Nespresso. And we see that our work is really to integrate the regenerative uh, agriculture project within the model of the companies. The companies have more and more agricultural departments where they have programs to improve the conditions. And so we are really an integrator of solution within the company. Um, that's the vision we have of insetting. Not only the project within your value chain, but how it's going to be transformative of the values of the company because it's going to be undertaken by the company itself. They will still need us for having a third party saying, yes, there is this amount of carbon that is stored or this benefit that is being generated, but it's really within their responsibility. It's like for recycling, it's what is called extended producer responsibility. But I think the producer responsibility is going to be extended towards so climate. It's already going on, but as well, soil, water, biodiversity, social livelihood, the impact on culture, plastics, and progressively the companies will have to internalize the externalities to reconcile with nature and society or they will disappear. And each of us, I think we are invited to reconcile with all these dimensions of ourselves and of our relation with others and with uh, with nature. This is a necessary progression and I think we we're going to go in this direction. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Neons Deeper Than Beauty. Neons is a science-based Swiss luxury skincare and nutritional supplement brand focused on activating the body's natural ability to rejuvenate and regenerate for a more vital, useful, and energetic appearance. Powered by groundbreaking furnace biotechnology, its award-winning formulas with the exclusive Swiss Glacier Complex combine over 100 powerful natural active ingredients with leading clinical research. One of my favorite products from Neons 
is the Collagen Hyaluron Beauty Booster, which is a nutritional supplement that I've been taking for the last three years. As its name suggests, it contains high concentrations of marine collagen and hyaluronic acid, as well as multiple essential vitamins and minerals. It comes in a powdery mix and I drink a sachet of it every morning with water. And for me, this is the super easy beauty ritual that helps to boost not only my skin and hair, but also my bones, nails, and joints. It's 100% made in Switzerland, free from gluten, lactose, and sugar. So I hope you'll give it a try. You can find Neons online at neons.com. That is N-I-A-N-C-E.com. As listeners of my podcast, you can benefit from 15% discount by using the promo code thefounderspirit15 on neons.com. Again, that is N-I-A-N-C-E.com. While you were at Pure Project, you also co-founded your third startup, which is called Second Life. It's a social enterprise dedicated to developing circular plastic waste supply chains. And you co-founded it with the founders of the French cosmetics company, Caudalie. Can you tell us the story behind the creation of Second Life? Yeah, again, it's kind of serendipity. Caudalie is a, is a big partner of Pure Projet. We planted more than 10 million trees for them. They are part of the one person for the planet. So they give uh, 1% of their cells to planting trees. The founders are sensitive to the fact that they are using plastic for their cosmetic products. They had seen in particular in Asia, in the sea, a lot of plastic floating, marine debris. So I asked me, what can we do? And so I started to make a study in Burma, Indonesia, Thailand, and then COVID happened. So I was stuck in Thailand and I decided to start to help a small uh, recycling center on the shore of Ranong on the coast of Thailand, a very nice project developed by, by a Swiss NGO uh, called Yane Oscar, where they were helping the fishermen and the islanders to collect, transport, and recycle plastics. So from there, I developed a model of plastic credit in the same way as a carbon credit to help these collectors in remote coastal areas to collect plastic, especially during the monsoon. There is a lot coming from Indonesia, uh, India, Burma, that islanders are not in capacity to transport and to recycle because the price is not there. And so usually they burn it or landfill it. By giving a price for it, they can collect it, transport it, and then with partnership with a regional recycler, ensure that this plastic is being recycled into pellets to produce new bottles. So we started Second Life three years ago, and it developed very well with Caudalie and other companies like Clarins, which is another famous cosmetic company engaged in reducing their plastic, but as well extending their producer responsibility beyond what they're already paying in Europe. But their idea was to go in countries such as Thailand. And with Second Life, uh, the first project to be Vera certified uh, in the world. So Vera developed the carbon standard for carbon offsetting, developed a standard for plastic. We're really uh, generating an, an impact that is additional, meaning collecting the plastics that otherwise would be burned in the open air or landfill or left in the ocean. Usually the people who collect on the beach are among the poorest. And this is where I found always my legitimacy is to work with group of disadvantaged communities, whether with Alter Eco or with Pure Projet or with Second Life, because companies have difficulty to work with the informal sector, but it's exactly where we bring an added value for Second Life, for example, we ensure that the money that is given by Kodali uh, or Clarins to collect and recycle the plastic goes to the community, to the guy on the beach. This is what we do to make the circular supply chain work. 
but at the very grassroots level. This is the backbone of my project to work with small scale farmers or disadvantaged communities and to connect them with big companies who want to generate an impact and who don't know how to connect to this uh, other side of the world. It has been my specialty. So the limit of what we're doing is that we work at the end of the chain when everything has failed before. So there was always this debate of, are you helping to greenwash the companies and to help them to continue to dump product or plastic on the market? Indeed, I was always working at the end of the chain and more on the consequences. The cause would be to work on reducing, avoiding the use of plastic, buying directly from the farmer and not emitting any CO2 instead of having to plant a tree for offsetting it. And I've always been, of course, very sensitive to this cause to go upstream, but because I've always been focused on grassroots community, I've always been a bit at the end of the chain uh, to develop a solution that helps them and that helps to compensate the problem. So now I want to work at the origin uh, of the problem. Your 2025 goal, according to the website of Second Life, is to recover and recycle ocean plastics on all islands and coastal areas in Thailand. How do you plan to achieve that? And is this an achievable goal for you? That's two years from now. Today we are at 2,000 tons per year of uh, ocean waste collected on beaches. We've proven that we can scale at the production level. We basically pay double the price to the collectors. And we give a price to the plastic that is non-recyclable, that doesn't have a value. So when you do that, everybody wants to collect the plastic on the beach because you give a value to something that had no value or little value. So the only bottleneck today for us is to find more clients. That's why we are focusing on finding a few multinationals that can help us achieve our goals. The evaluation we did on all the remote coastal areas and islands of Thailand, we estimate we could collect 50,000 tons per year. And for that, we just need more clients. So it's totally achievable. What we realize with development stakes it's often not so much a question of money, but more a question of a network and setup. How do you reach out to the people who need to be helped? And what do you do with a non-recyclable plastic? So there is indeed about 20% of the plastic that we collect that is too dirty to be uh, recycled. In this case, we mix them with biomass and they are sold as RDF, refused derived fuel, the combustible for a cement and an electric power company in Thailand to generate electricity. So in this case, they are not recycled, but they, they generate an environmental benefit because we reduce the use of virgin oil to do this electricity or this cement. We have founded a small factory for land plastics in Chiang Mai, where we transform non-recyclable plastics into uh, pavement blocks, public benches. Where are you looking to expand? So we support a project in Indonesia and another one in Vietnam. We think we're going to stay in Asia because 80% of the 13 million ton of plastic that go in the ocean each year come from Asia. So it's really an Asian problem. Our idea is to develop the model at a national level in Thailand and then indeed to develop it in the same way in, in Indonesia and other countries. I'm very interested to bring a systemic approach to a problem. Otherwise, what we do is greenwashing. We are condemned to find a solution at large scale, go big or go home. You had mentioned that you're now working at the source of the problem. Now, is there a better way to build a systemic model? Yeah, when you see the Paris Agreement, we have to reduce our footprint by 80 to 90%. 
with COVID, we've uh, screamed, but we reduced it by four or five percent only. So imagine the change we have to make in our lives to reach a Paris Agreement at an individual level to reduce by 80 or 90 percent, whether we impose very restrictive laws or we decide to change by ourselves. And for that, it has to be a consciousness change from the inside, not to consume, not to travel uh, by choice. And so to me, yes, to work on the cause, it's to work on the internal drivers of change. So we can call it the consciousness, because I believe we're not going to solve uh, the problem with a, a packet of uh, fair trade coffee or a tree or a kilo of plastic collected on the beach. It's great to do it. But as long as we continue to want to consume so much and develop so much, and if we are 9 billion, and if we all eat beef two to three times a day at McDonald's, it's over. There is no more forest, that's for sure. So we really have to make a big shift. And I believe this shift will come from the inside because uh, the issues we see on the outside are the manifestation of our disbalance inside. But then the question is, how do we help the consciousness change? How do we do it? I do we do it in an inviting way, but I'm very interested to explore. And I believe that the future of a social enterprise will be about uh, this kind of companies, which will help us to shift from the inside. With climate change, we are confronted with the end of human life on the planet, huh? more or less when you read the IPCC report, uh, it's uh, the end for except a few billionaires. So this calls for deep work on our consciousness and how do we relate to that? Because when I ask my son how he sees the future, he says it's going to be a dystopia. So how do you live with that? And how do you stay happy? How do you stay hopeful? For me, it's very important. And this is what we can bring with this new uh, kind of social entrepreneurship, which will be about spirituality or well-being, about experiencing. Maybe cross-disciplinary approaches, like going in the forest, uh, dancing, uh, expressing yourself with art. I don't have the solution yet, but I, I believe it's going to come... Uh, and we can observe already that it's coming. For example, intermittent fasting, self-development activities such as yoga, society is going more towards being rather than having and enjoying more with less. This movement is already underway and it's going to be the next evolution. I see that among the people who are engaged in sustainability, this trend is very strong. This is how we transform society. And I've seen it evolving before with fair trade, with organics. And it's coming. So it's like a Maslow pyramid. For now, it touches only uh, Europeans, but progressively, it's as well uh, Americans, that rich countries, and later on, the developing countries. Well, the movement that you're talking about, we call it SBNR, spiritual but not religious. It's the fastest growing non-religion in the world. Speaking of your second life, you've adopted more of a Eastern philosophy now. And among other things, you followed the teaching of Theravada Buddhism. Can you tell us what it is and can you share with us some of the learnings? Theravada Buddhism is what is practiced in Thailand and I've, I'm particularly sensitive to a tradition called the tradition of the forest. So the forest monks base their teaching and their learning by staying in long periods in the forest, several years, because the Buddha found enlightenment in the forest under a tree and teaching of the Buddha is translated as the laws of nature in Thai. So the forest monk will basically invite you to go in the forest and to observe nature and to realize, for example, uh, non-self, uh, interdependence, uh, impermanence, suffering, all these key uh, uh, principles of Buddhism. And, and I like this, the fact that this teaching is uh, based on observing nature and very simple, and it's not a dogmatic 
teaching because you have to experience it by yourself to believe in it. This is one of the strong principles of the Buddha. Like, don't believe in anything that I tell you until you experience it yourself. I was uh, brought up in a Christian family and I practiced, but I had a bit this love and hate relation with Christianity because there were very strict rules. And I like to break the rule or to question the rules, especially a social entrepreneur. We want to change something. And I really enjoy Theravada Buddhism, this freedom of believing only in what you believe because you have experienced it. So this, this spirituality is a, uh, very much aligned with what I'm doing as work because I'm doing reforestation with Pure Projet. So I found it interesting to see these two lines between spirituality and work more and more uh, intertwined. And uh, I think spirituality will be uh, a key element to help companies become more sustainable or reconcile with their purpose. I would agree with you on that 100%. Something else that you do on a regular basis is called contact improvisation. So to the best of my knowledge, it's a form of improvised dancing that you do with a partner. Can you tell us what it is and why you do it? Yeah, it's a great exploration. Contact improvisation started in the U.S. in the 70s by contemporary dancers who were mixing it with Aikido based on the contact of two people. Contact is one of the senses that we should use, but unfortunately we've lost a bit its use. So the idea is to rediscover this sense by dancing together in groups of two or more people in free forms to let your your body talk and to leave your mind aside. And I really like it because it's a dance and a meditation, which is great for the body, for the mind and the spirit. Uh, it's practiced with a group of people where there is trust to do what is called authentic presence and to be in, in noble silence, to be nature rather than to look at nature because uh, it's by being nature that we realize our divine nature where we are fully connected. We are one with nature. There is no separation and it's very powerful to experience that with other people uh, via these practices. Interesting. In our quest to reduce carbon by 80%, by 2050, what do you think we could do as individuals related to climate mitigation? Personally, at our own level, we can reduce our consumption, like transport and meat consumption. According to Paul Oaken, who has written Climate Drawdown, where he lists 100 solutions for climate, he says that it's at the community level that we can have the biggest lever for reducing our footprint. And then collectively or at the national level or international, but we can offset, we can reduce our footprint and offset. I don't believe there is many people who are offsetting their footprint today and very few companies, but it's basically what we need to do it's on climate, on biodiversity, soil, water, uh, livelihood. So it's a whole journey that we are just at the start today. We have to reconcile with nature and to evaluate our footprint for each indicator. And then we have to offset it to balance with nature. The best way being to reduce and to avoid to consume uh, anything we can. Tristan, we're soon coming to the end of this episode. Tell us what your favorite books are over the years, besides your own, of course. So I love uh, The Revolution of a Rice Straw by Masanobu Fukuoka. It's from 1973. It's agronomic and philosophical. It's uh, the ancestor of permaculture. And it's so beautiful. And he already tells all the problems that we're going to create with uh, intensive agriculture. There is a book from Schumacher, Small is Beautiful, written as well in 1973, and it's very visionary of what's going to happen. And otherwise, uh, I love the autobiography from uh, Gandhi 
or the Bhagavad Gita. It's an Indian um, sacred text. Bhagavad Gita, very interesting. I think it's very much the principles that drive the entrepreneur and in particular social entrepreneur to work for, without uh, thinking of the benefits that come to us because it's very liberating, empowering. And where can people find you, your book, Second Life and the International Platform for In Settings Online? So secondlife.earth to find Second Life. For the books, it's on Amazon. And for Pure Project, pur.co and IPI, is the insetting platform, insettingplatform.com. And what about you? Where can they find you? On LinkedIn or... Um... In the forest or the next contact improv performance festival. Exactly, exactly. And last but not least, what does the founder spirit mean to you? Founder spirit, it's an explorer, it's a breaking the rules, and it's a spirit, so it's beautiful. Everybody has it, and everybody would like to be a founder of something in his life, and I really encourage everybody to try because it's uh, the most beautiful thing you do, and there is no way back. And you can't fail. Maybe you found something or that is working or not, but at least you can't regret. I never met a founder who said I should never have done it. No, we're always happy even though we fail sometimes. That's the founder spirit, to want to create something different. And we're now coming to the end of our interview. And as you know, we end every episode with a quote. And for this episode, we have Tristan's favorite quote by Lao Tzu, an ancient Chinese philosopher. It is better to light a candle than to curse the darkness. Tristan, I want to thank you for joining us today and taking us into your consciousness as well as your journey as a successful social entrepreneur. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much, Jennifer. Jennifer.